The following conversation is with Patrick Sullivan. Patrick is a game designer, commentator, and former pro magic player. He is currently the host of The Resleavables, a show that examines magic's 30-year history from a design perspective. A few quick words about supporting Humans of Magic. If you're interested in supporting the show, the best thing you can do is to support us at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Patreon is where you can make a direct contribution to the ongoing longevity of the show. It helps me keep the show going because it's a part-time effort and a labor of love. I've recently expanded the show to have more perks, more value for the buck, including the ability to ask questions of future guests in the show and to play a hand in voting for who gets interviewed next. I'm also going to be doing probably monthly sessions so that fans of the show who are patrons can do Q&A with me. And there's also going to be a higher level tier for those who are interested in getting coaching for becoming a better interviewer or just running a magic podcast because it's something that I've been doing for a while and I have some perspectives to share. Please consider Patreon because it's the most direct way to make an impact to my livelihood and my bottom line. Thank you for listening. Now, without further ado, this is my conversation with Patrick Sullivan. Who is Patrick Sullivan? Hmm. Uh, right now, the things that feel the most definitional for me are uh, father of three in his 40s. <laughs> um, I guess from sort of a professional or adult, you know, sort of the total sum of my adulthood uh Game designer, uh, sort of a professional hanger-on of the Magic the Gathering Pro Tour, and an enthusiast of Magic's game history. What do you mean by hanger-on? Like you're still you still like to be involved. You aspire to continue to be involved. You're around people who are involved. Uh, can you just break that down? More that my career was not very successful. Uh, I loved the excitement of going to the pro tour and trying to qualify for it. And I do love magic as a game uh, and always have, and found it to be really stimulating and trying to improve your play. And back in the day when this was more of a thing, deck building was basically a bottomless hole that you could dive into, but I never put in the work, just sort of the, the grind of playing matchups over and over again, iterating on decks and all that kind of stuff to succeed at the pro level. Not to say that I necessarily would have, because I think the very best of the best are also more talented at playing the game than I am, and it's hard to make up that gap. But in terms of hanger-on, more of, I was a tourist, I loved it in its own way, but never put in the work that is necessary to really hit the highest echelons of play. Even though if you had asked me 20 years ago, like, do you want to top eight a pro tour? Do you want to be qualified for worlds? I would have said, yeah, absolutely. But my actions never reflected that. Do you believe that it's a, it's a function of putting in more work? Is that, is that primarily what it takes to be a, a winning or a more winning competitive player? I think that it is. 
I, I, w- I guess I would take a step back and say, generally speaking, there's sort of a need for it to be all-encompassing. Like, it needs to be the thing you're thinking about in the shower. It needs to be uh, just where you're applying your time and energy and your free time and your free mental space. I think that some of that does translate into, you know, the work playing over and over again. But it's more of a focus on that to the exclusion of other things. Right. That's kind of a a mentality, a mindset, a way to be. Is that does that necessarily lead to stronger success or a more accomplished kind of success? Maybe, maybe I don't know if you've seen this around folks that you associated with. Like, did you have to be? Does one have to be thinking about magic in the shower to be to be at the very top? I maybe that's a little bit extreme, but I do think there is a certain level of it constituting a huge portion of your life, whatever that looks like. Um, I do think that it is a requirement when you're talking about success purely through a competitive lens. Uh, and, and that's not exclusive to magic. I think that if you look at athletics or pretty much anything else, uh, there is a combination of natural talent meets singular drive. I, I do look back on my like quote unquote magic career and do think it is, was and is successful insofar as I've gotten to be a commentator and I've gotten to travel all around and I've gotten to work on magic. And, uh, you know, I, I currently am doing this receivables project that's, um, been more successful faster than I definitely anticipated. Uh, but if you're talking, so from there's the question of like, do you have any, regrets about things no not at all but i think if you're just talking about the wins and losses at the big tournaments like that's kind of what it takes do you have regrets like looking back on all that i mean because the way you described it it to me maybe i'm just projecting but it feels like there's a little bit of unfinished business or something there maybe am i reading too much into it that was definitely the space that i was in i think 10 years ago and I tried pretty hard for the last pro tour I qualified for. I mean, to back, to back up a little bit, like when I was playing 15, 20 years ago, after every pro tour, I thought to myself, this is going to be my last pro tour. It's going to be too hard to get back on. I'm going to have to win a PTQ or, you know, top eight a Grand Prix. And you just have to get so lucky to be able to do that sort of thing. And I was able to do it um, time and time again. And then the last pro tour that I played in, I was lucky enough to get to test with Channel Fireball. So uh, Luis and Josh R. Layden and Kibler and Jerry Thompson, just, you know, a star-studded team. And I finished 11-5, and which was not good enough to qualify me for the next Pro Tour because you needed to finish in the top 25, and I missed on tiebreakers. Finished like 31st or 32nd, I think. And at the end of that Pro Tour... That was the first time I said, I'm going to get back on. Like, I love this and it means something to me. And there is some unfinished business. And this is sort of proof of concept that if I do apply myself that I could hang, you know, I'm not saying I would ever be one of the best players or whatever, but there was untapped potential even in my 30s. And it just didn't happen. Um, Now the state of magic in my own life is such that it's not 
uh, a driver for my behavior in any way. I don't really think about it. But there was definitely a time not that that long ago that I I felt the way that you're describing. What, what was the what was the shift? Was it becoming a father? Was it obligations? Was it just kind of something else? It was all of it. I mean, it started with the commentary. I think one because I, um, when I was doing it for Star City, it was sort of an all encompassing thing. I was traveling most weekends, and that sort of precludes you from. Um, being able to, you know, try to play in PTQs or Grand Prix, whatever the thing is. And also, I thought that Cedric and I had the potential to do something pretty special. I could, I could feel it, and that sort of replaced the competitive drive of Magic to some extent, I suppose. Later on, yeah, having certainly having kids shuts the door on that uh, for me, at least. Um, and then, you know, sort of the. Uh, rolling back of organized play, you know, during COVID and then sort of post-COVID. All of these add up. It's, it's definitely little bits and pieces. But I would say the commentary was really the start of that feeling, not so much the having kids. Yeah, I remember interviewing a, a few folks, including uh, PV, Paulo Vitor Demo de Rosa. And this is well before PV won the, the world champion uh, title. But he, I remember him telling me that he felt good being a commentator because there was less pressure to perform. Or maybe the pressure to perform is a different type of pressure where it feels more within one's control than the variance of a card game like Magic the Gathering. I, I don't know if you agree with that to some extent because he was saying at the time, now I don't know how he feels now, this is a few years ago, but he was saying that if he could have a choice, he would just do commentary all the time because there was less of that pressure. I think it's probably different sorts of pressure. And if you asked 100 people, you'd probably get 50 that answered one way versus the other. I've just always been a very natural public speaker. I remember um, so I, I, when I was a freshman in high school in uh, 1996. And the first thing that I wanted to do was join the debate team. Uh, I, there, I had an advisor. His name is Mr. Fenster, who was phenomenal, like a huge influential educator on me, even though I never actually had him as a student. It was all in this extracurricular stuff. So it's the 1996 presidential election coming up. And Fenster's big idea is we're going to have like mock debates in front of the student body. Um, so... There's going to be a Democrat team, a Republican team, and then there was like Ross Perot's sort of independent thing going on in the in 96. And so the teams would be broken up basically into there would be a presidential and vice presidential candidate. Those would be the two people up on the stage actually debating. And then everyone else would be sort of uh, punching up notes or doing research or whatever the thing was. So freshman, you know, 14 years old or whatever, I'm like – well, I definitely want to debate. I want to be up there. And so I latched on to the Ross Perot. Like, you got to choose your team. And I was like, I'm choosing the Ross Perot team because no one else chose it. It was like everyone mm. else was just a, on the Democrat or Republican side. So I ended up being like the vice presidential debater in front of the school or whatever. So I'm in an auditorium of, you know, I was, you know, an awkward teen as many are and you know, probably like 140 pounds, about the same height. And I'm just 
you know, in the auditorium talking in front of, you know, three or 400 upperclassmen and people in the back are trying to distract me or like, you know, upperclassmen lifting up their shirts or trying to do something to get me to laugh, whatever the thing is. And I was just at ease up there. Um, so I, I just always had this sort of comfort in front of a room or in front of a camera. Uh, the pressure of, so it, it, to me, it's not even like there's, there's no pressure at all just because I don't, I've never felt that. I never mm -hmm. recall ever feeling that as a public speaker or as a performer, whatever you want to call it. Um, so yeah, it's not about being better at one thing versus the other for me or feeling one style pressure or the other. It's, it's just completely absent in that one realm. And so it's not one pressure versus the other or one type of stress versus the other for me. It's just been, no, I'm, I feel totally at ease doing this and yeah, playing magic sometimes is stressful for me. Um, you know, wanting to win or not wanting to embarrass myself or whatever. So it's definitely less stressful for me to be doing commentary, but that's not because I, I feel a different sort of stress or a different sort of degree. It's that there's no stress in that arena for me. Right. So you can take that, basically what you're saying is you can take that stage fright aspect out of it. I think I'm similar as well. When I go up to give a, a talk or a presentation, I have never felt speechless. I've never felt like... I incapacitated. So I've never had, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know how, actually, first of all, do you know where you got that from? Like how, how was it that even back in high school, you, you didn't have that? Is it, is it just innate, something innate in you? I think so. One of my early memories, I was playing little league baseball when I was eight or nine years old and my mom was driving me back and she goes, you know what, Patrick, I think one day you're, you would be just a great like baseball commentator. And I started to cry and she goes, why are you upset? <laughs> and she goes, and I go, you, do you think I can't play major league baseball? And she goes, Oh, sweetie, no way. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't remember it, but you know, as an eight, nine, 10 year old, whatever, I, I wasn't like I was doing any sort of like Toastmaster or public speaking sort of thing. Uh, so, I didn't have a sense of it then, but I guess, you know, the gift of gab or whatever you want to call it. But once I got to high school and started doing the debate stuff and, you know, doing it more competitively, um, it, it, you know, I had a pretty natural, if not aptitude, at least comfort there. Right. So I, I guess two things. First of all, it, it's funny. I was just laughing because there's sort of as a kid, you're sort of you kind of assign a hierarchy to the importance of things. Right. So kind of commentating is just secondary to actually playing baseball. So I found that um, very relatable at the time because you have no idea, like, well, what is this other thing? Like, how can you know as a as a 10-year-old or a 9-year-old that it's a career, right? Or it's it's something, uh, it's an actual craft because <laughs> you just exactly. want to hit the ball, right? That's the only thing in front of you, so. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, a, there's this, like, how could that be someone's job? You know what I mean? That it just feels like part of the background or whatever. Whereas the baseball players on the field clearly are demonstrating some very special talents. And that's something that I really gravitated towards. But yeah, no, no sense that that was also a craft that's very competitive or selective maybe is a better way of describing it. So I guess that part you're born with. And then the second thing I want to say is just to that, right. So whether you're commentating or you're playing magic at high levels, that sort of stage fright, that's not something that 
is a factor. So maybe is it fair to say like when you're commentating, it's more about your own perception of what it takes to do a good job. And it's more about kind of maybe not letting your, your coworkers down or maybe not letting yourself down as opposed to performing for an audience. It's a tough question. I would, I would say that magic is a game where there's just a lot of downtime. Uh, and you also have a lot of games or matches that are just not competitive. You know, someone, something that any viewer at home watching could have won this game. It's pretty rare that you get to see the moments that make someone special and actually capture it. So when you're talking about, you you have no guarantee that the game is going to be good, quote unquote good. And uh, you are going to have a lot of downtime no matter what is going on. Your own personality just has to come through. There's no way of avoiding that. And so I think in terms, like, instead of trying to, here's how you are a professional magic commentator, I think it's more, here is how to be true to your own voice, because your own voice is going to be the thing driving the action a lot of the time, not actually the action itself. That makes sense. And did you get much better over time at filling in the downtime, as you called it? I don't know. I, I never really went back and listened to any of my recordings with the, with an with an ear towards trying to improve anything other than my ums and uhs and likes. You know, sort of the that sort of really basic noise and and sort of filler. So I don't know if I got better or worse. Um, I I would like to think that with anything you sort of get more experienced over time, and that usually means improvement, but not necessarily. I'm a big fan of the expression, practice doesn't make perfect, it makes permanent, which sometimes that could be a good thing, right? If you're if you're practicing the right way. But if you're not, then you're just developing habits. So I, I guess to answer the question, it's hard for me to say. On that track, if you look back on your commentary career, did commentary just make you a better commentator? Or were there things about that that carried over to other aspects of your of your life. I think it definitely helped with some of the article writing and videos that, you know, the sort of nebulous content creation space, whatever you want to call it, because you have to think of how can you describe what is ever happening in a way that is both engaging for people who know what's going on and sufficiently explanatory for people who maybe don't. That's the that's the needle that I I felt I tried to thread as best I could as a color commentator. And a lot of that sort of naturally ports over into other ways to talk about things. And I would even add, you know, as a game designer, sometimes I've been tasked with training uh, junior hires on sort of the foundation of the craft and thinking about how to communicate those concepts, uh, you know, is, is important for getting people to understand the, the, the core principles. So I guess it was helpful in that way. Uh, but Again, hard to say for sure, because talking versus writing are kind of two different things. What separates a very good player from an all-time player? What have you seen in folks around you in terms of traits, mindset, or otherwise? So I think that the big thing that gets overlooked a lot is just there's so much information that's always happening in the game that most people just don't even know where to begin to look. 
uh, the way that your opponent sequences their lands, especially when they keep seven, usually reveals quite a bit about the nature of their hand or why they would have kept something if they started off with a weak, a seemingly weak uh, or disruptive opening. The way that people even just move cards around in their hand and just just all of it. There's a lot of information that is out there. I think there's a certain level of precision and technical prowess that goes into it too. And some of that's mindset and some of that's practice. Uh, I, I once asked Brad Nelson, this is one of the most fascinating, maybe the most fascinating thing that anyone has ever told me about magic. I was like, Brad, what's your process? Like, how do how do you test? Because Brad is sort of, he doesn't necessarily fit the mold of how a lot of successful magic players have done things. Or I think that was part of the reason that it took him a while to get sort of the the professional respect that he deserved. And he said, what I want to do is just memorize the first four turns of the game. How I'm supposed to play the first four turns of the game in every matchup. And he said, once you get beyond turn four, things are kind of too chaotic. Uh, be, so you've got to get back to playing magic again. But he said, memorize the first four turns because uh, one, you're not leaking any information because you can play rapid, rapid fast. If you are memorizing what the moves are. And two, if your opponent is thinking about anything, you know what they're thinking about because you know what the possible options are for that turn of the game based on what you've done already. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> like, that blew my mind because I'd never heard anyone talk in those terms before, but it totally makes sense. I wouldn't be able to replicate that. And that speaks to Brad's sort of drive and, and work ethic. Uh, but yeah, that that pretty much did it for me. <laughs> I'm just wondering how he came up with that. I have no idea. I, didn't, I, I was so blown away that I couldn't even think to ask a follow up. I just sort of, it's like when you see photos of people who are nearby, a, like a blast or a bomb, and they're sort of just staggering around. That was my reaction to it. Because I, I didn't think he was going to say something that kind of overwhelming. I didn't really know how to process it. But yeah, next time I see him, I should probably ask that follow-up. It's, it's kind of mind-blowing, but it's also kind of contrarian in a way, right? Or it's kind of it's kind of deliberately contrarian in the sense that there is this, at least there's a, there's a sense I have when I think about high level magic players in that they're supposed to be entirely intuitive. There's no, there's no such thing as autopiloting there. There, they, everything is very nuanced and deliberate, like even turn one to turn four. I, I, I don't know. Like it's, it almost feels like he's figured something out, but it's also maybe going to what you said, it's figuring something out, but then tailoring it to the self or a particular style of, player right it's there's doesn't seem like there's a one-size-fits-all for this kind of thing especially when there's other people who have been successful that have never may have never heard about this rule or heuristic right right yeah no it's it is uh it is antithetical to a lot of the way that the the best players that i know have approached the game which is like you said it's intuitive you're trying to pick up little bits of information you're trying to just have a feel for the game you know like uh, all those sort of terms Ultimately, that, that does have to translate into playing very well technically for it to mean anything. But you're right. That's not the way that most of the best players have talked about the game. It's certainly not the way that I would ever have talked about the game. But it totally makes sense. And yeah, I think Brad figured out. Some, I, again, I don't know how easy it is 
to replicate that because it requires doing the work such that you know what the best plays are. Like, you have to be able to memorize the game to be able to do this, right? And that means playing very, very well and playing a ton. But even that aside, I was really overwhelmed by that sort of response because it's just so different than any... I'd never heard anyone describe the game that way. And I've been around for a long time, and I've been around a lot of really good players, and that was something I had never heard anyone describe before. Yeah. You know how there's a kind of, uh, I don't even know if there's a term or for this kind of phenomena where people are just bad at explaining things in general. I, I don't know if there's, I mean, I've heard of Dunning-Kruger where it's like you overestimate your abilities or other variations of that, or you over underestimate the complexity of something. But mm -hmm. one thing that I've kind of realized doing these interviews with Magic players, especially on the pro side, is that people are not very good at explaining why they're good at magic. Do you do you have any ideas as to why that might be? Because Maybe Brad being the exception, right? In this one sliver of a case. Well, yeah. I don't even know if Brad would necessarily say like this is what makes me good. He didn't describe it in those terms. It was just I just asked what's your process? And that's the answer that I I gave. He might connect it to why he's been successful, but I'm not, I I wouldn't know for sure. I think because magic's a really complicated game and part of being a successful magic player is being able to very quickly synthesize information uh, against a very complicated backdrop. And that's a hard thing to verbalize. Like, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Uh, you, you play a lot of legacy, like, and you're imagine you're brainstorming and you are, you have the opportunity to shuffle away a daze or not. If you, if someone asked you in the moment, why did you keep the days versus shuffling away? It would probably be extremely complicated to verbalize, but you can intuit that answer based on repetition and, and practice very, very quickly. It's sort of like driving a car. When you first start driving a car, you have to be thinking about everything that you're doing. And with enough muscle memory, you get to a point where you are navigating a very complicated system without even having to think about it. And, in the same way, if someone asked me, "Why are you? How are you good at driving a car?" I'd be like, I don't really know how to answer that. Uh, I, I think that explaining why you're good at magic is uh, similarly complicated. I guess I could point to I can I can see in myself and I can see in other players abilities that I think they possess that are kind of unique to them, um, but they aren't necessarily universal. And trying to describe generally being able to navigate a complicated system quickly and efficiently is not the easiest thing to verbalize or even intellectualize. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. I think the car analogy is a really, really good one. Like, or maybe, maybe it's like, I could explain why I know how to drive a car or how I do it, or I could explain why I'm brainstorming away these cards, but it would take like three pages or it would take an essay to do. And I also don't know how many people are able to just take that and do something with it. I also feel like there's a lot of it, which is, especially when driving a car, like you just have to do it. I don't think anyone can learn how to drive a car without the practice aspect. So maybe I'm just sort of in real time landing on the fact that there's theory and then there's obviously practice and you can never truly replicate the practice of going to a thousand GPs and playing magic in a certain way, right? I I mean I've had bits and pieces of pieces of advice that have really or seen moments that have really 
stuck with me and sort of unlocked uh, level ups in my game. But they are more heuristics than rules. I got to test with uh, Yelger Vigersma for a Pro Tour way, way back in the day. And, I, you know, I, I think he's one of the best players of all time. And the the person who I, I tested against and played against where I felt like I could never beat this person. Like, they're just way too good. Um, and I asked him about a play he was making once in a draft when we were testing at the store. And he said, in the first couple of turns in draft, all I try to do is figure out how to tap out. Because then that unlocks... He didn't follow up with this, but it's like, but, but it's because first of all, the, the first few turns are usually not impactful enough such that it's worth trying to maximize plays versus maximize mana efficiency. And then the more mana efficient you are early on, the more that it unlocks options, multiple plays later on in the game. He said it like it was the most obvious thing, but it's clearly not. And it's also like to, to be able to, digest that rule and do something useful with it you have to know when the exceptions are too so it's a little piece of the information and it was useful for me because i already had sort of the context of you know generally how to play i was playing on the pro tour we were testing on the pro tour together but hearing that little nugget of of wisdom really pushed my game forward at the peak of your magic powers what was your process how might you describe your process or heuristics that were working for you so I, I was way more successful at limited than constructed. And I guess my process was sort of, so first of all, I always did better in draft formats where I could say, this is the rule. This is the archetype I'm trying to do. I understand all the pick valuations and what cyborg cards matter and all that, rather than being sort of open to the draft. So I succeeded in formats where I, I figured out something that I liked and then could just sort of brute force it. Beyond that, getting a sense for, is the format slow or fast? What are the inflection points for power and toughness that are really useful? Just what, you know, when is the 23rd playable for this archetype versus that archetype? You know, not just being adhering to this card is playable or not. Uh, so I guess at the end of the day, what I'm describing is doing a lot of work, like playing enough to figure out an archetype that you liked and then, getting in the weeds enough to be able to know the specific picks and the, the, the stuff on the margins that, um, you know, adds up even if it isn't obvious at the time. Um, but yeah, I, I guess that was my, my process was weirdly enough working pretty hard. Imagine that. <laughs> oh, I mean, you're, you're a working person's magic player. At least that's how, how I always, uh, perceived you. So that, 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 that fits. And, um, did you feel at any time that this was there was some sort of ceiling to it? Because and I, and this is kind of a leading question because I always find when talking to magic players, there's always a sense that there's a foundational or fundamentals aspect that you master, but then at the highest levels, you sort of have to throw out the rules at at times, or at least maybe in some sort of post narrative discussion, people seem to heavily imply that so i i'm not sure how you see that you know when when you, when you talk about your heuristics and uh the the limitations or lack thereof um yeah i mean it, it's sort of a it, uh, as with most things it's a blend i think where you need to have your guidelines to speed up your decision making and largely make it precise but also know when you need to deviate from that 
Um, I, I actually think that that skill it comes up a ton in draft. I also think it happens to come up a lot playing just ag- aggressive red decks, right? Like having a feel for the game where am I using my burn spells to remove creatures to clear a uh, remove creatures to clear a path or to buy myself time versus when I need to just play a non-interactive game. That is a very much a blend of heuristics meets uh, being able to sense when the exceptions are. Um, and I, I guess that's part of the reason that I've gravitated towards those styles of decks and constructed. What were your heuristics for or process for constructed? Um, well, I, I mean, in the when I first started playing really competitively, I just kind of played whatever I perceived the best deck to be. Um, over time, part of it was I was playing Magic a lot less. I think part of it is also just insulating yourself from the reality that you can't just pick up any old deck and play particularly well. Um, I think part of it is also that I, it's just fun. Like I viscerally enjoyed the experience um, is why I started gravitating to those styles of decks. Later on in your career, you became known more as a, uh, a red mage. So was there some sort of specific delineation point in which you, you oh, embrace yeah. that? Oh yeah. So way back in the day, there was this tournament called the. Uh, there is a uh, tournament at. There, what was it called? Not Gen Con. Origins. Origins. So it was a. I think it actually hosted U.S. Nationals like way back in the day, uh, but it was like a smaller Gen Con in Columbus, and they had the what the Origins the Cyborg Team Challenge. So it was a five on five tournament where there was basically. I'm trying to think what the the decks were. It was basically there was a Type Two deck standard uh extended vintage and then two sealed decks i feel like where <laughs> like mercadia mass sealed and urza block sealed or something like that and you played against another team of five and um you know if you won three matches you won so i was going to be the extended player i don't know what deck i was planning on playing but I don't know if it was because OSIP thought that red was the best deck or we had some sort of card availability issue or something, but I ended up playing mono red for the first time and really just fell in love with playing the deck and was surprised by how resilient it could be, even in the face of some pretty directed hate cards. And that tournament was a big line of, it wasn't like I played exclusively mono red from that point forward, but it was a pretty big, Oh, I really enjoyed this. I might have a skill for this. And if it's a deck that's reasonable to play, I'm probably going to spend my energy focusing on that. That's really interesting. So it had nothing to do with something before that event or even like the flavor of red. Like it was just, you know, that brought you a lot of success and I have to assume joy with your camaraderie and teammates and you just felt like it was working. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, something that has kind of always been on my mind as a magic player. It's just this, like, I was I was never the best player in the room. I grew up with Eugene Harvey, who I think should be in the Magic Hall of Fame. He was a year ahead of me in school, and we were friends for before magic was even in the picture. And then when I started going into the only game in town, you know, Osip Levadovich was there, uh, Gerard Fabiano, John Sani, Craig Krempels, Adam Porbath. Um, you know, I, I was regularly the weakest player in drafts of eight people. And that was actually good for leveling up my game for sure. 
but part of that comes with just you know the stigma you you internalize that right the being the worst player in the room and in a team setting feeling like I didn't want to let these people down uh weighed on me really heavily if you look at my team limited results at pro tours that's where I definitely did the best and worked the hardest and it was because I was so partially because I was so afraid of uh, letting everyone down and sort of revealing how inadequate I was compared to the people that I was around. And that feeling of not only having fun of like, oh, this deck's fun. I'm, I'm enjoying the games. It's it's cool. This is different. There is also a, oh, yeah, I went uh, six and two. Like I held up my end of the bargain. People are happy with my performance. Um, that, that definitely meant a lot too. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of truth to the idea that pressure makes diamonds, right? Like when you have, when you have those feelings of inadequacy or needing to uh, hold up on your end or just needing to perform, right? Period. That, that just, that just drives a lot of people to do a lot of things. So if you look back on that pivotal time in your magic career, would you say that that's something that all players need to face at some point if they want to get to the top of the game from a competitive sense without question i mean it's just that what separates you from the best players are things you do not know that's just that's just how it has to be and the only way not the only way to figure it out but certainly the fastest way to figure it out is by being around them and losing a bunch um i mean i remember i tested for the um the last pro tour I played in, the one with Channel Fireball, uh, I it was Dragon's Maze. That was the format. And I did five drafts, and I went five and ten in the team drafts. And I was I was shook, right? Because like, I, I think of myself as more of a limited player. I thought I could hang, and I'm like, I just embarrassed myself in front of in this room of people who are really, really good. And then I got to the Pro Tour, and no, nah, I went four and two in my two drafts, and I got pretty unlucky to only go four and two. It's like, oh, it was good. It was still good that that experience, but you have to be able to swallow your pride a little bit along the way. How much of magic for you was or is proving yourself to yourself versus proving yourself to others? It's a lot about proving something to myself. I think I, I really latched on to competitive magic when. Uh, my personal life was like in shambles, pretty much any other respect. Um, I was, I mean, I was starting to play a little bit in tournaments before all this happened, but I, I went to college for one year, my second semester. I, and I had like, you know, it was a pretty good program and I had scholarship, all this. And, uh, second semester. What, what did you study by the way? I actually don't know. Diplomacy and international relations. Ah, so it was a kind of follow up from the debate stuff yeah, right? in a yeah. way i thought i wanted to work in law or government or something mm. and i think my second semester i probably didn't go to a single class and was uh in a mental health facility for two weeks in the summer afterwards and then was kicked out of my house my parents house about a week afterwards and yeah, that was a, obviously a, a very challenging time and you know i was in outpatient care and then couldn't go anymore because I didn't have insurance and all this. So magic was something that I really latched on to in, in a sense of even if the rest of my life is 
in shambles, chaotic, whatever. This is something that I can exercise mastery over. Um, I can be good at this. I can be better at other people than this. And there is a certain level of insulating yourself from reality that comes around, I think, for when you're doing something like that competitively. And I'm, I'm certainly not the first Magic player to kind of talk in these terms. Um, and the, there was this feeling of like, well, if I'm not good enough at this, then what am I supposed to do? Like, I have some experience here. I have some aptitude. I have a good support system in terms of a store and players to play with and nothing else in my life is going right. So if I can't succeed at this, then I don't know if there's anything out there for me. Fortunately, it worked out at that point in your life because you achieved a level of magic success, but sliding doors moment, what do you think would have happened if you tried really hard at magic and you didn't get to where you wanted to be? I mean, uh, is uh, at the risk of being, too or there was moment. no choice, right? I guess. Yeah, it was, do or die. I don't know. I was, uh, un, un, intermittently underhoused and homeless bunch of my like years, 19 and 20. Um, there was a bunch of years where I was sleeping at the card store. I was like in very bad shape mentally with no resources. Uh, I very much doubt I would have been alive, honestly, if things broke a little bit different, which is so, it's so wild to say it out loud. I don't know if I've ever really acknowledged it in those terms, but yeah, I think, if I had stumbled there, um, you know, or couldn't get on the pro tour and everyone else was sort of all, all of my friends and sort of social network was sort of passing me by. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know what would have happened. I would have, I would believe anything. How did you eventually get things back on track or find a more stable footing? I have to assume it's gotta be more than just, magic right there's got to be other factors as well that led to the uh ultimately better well-being right i think it's a, it's a having a less myopic perspective on life or set of interests um allowing certain things to not be competitive or not be optimization puzzles um surrounding myself with people who were more in that sort of mindset who are not in competitive arenas, I guess having a more like generalized and holistic sense of the world instead of experiences. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, that's easy to say in some part because really a lot of the big stuff was practical. Like I got a real job and I got to move from New Jersey and shed some of the baggage of being in the same town that I grew up in. Um, there's some of that, but past the sort of basic necessity stuff, it was, um, being around more people in environments where what was valued was different. Got it. And uh, what what's your what's the relationship with your parents like now? Um, I mean, so for starters, we live we physically live quite far apart. Um, I, I live in Denver, and they they're in New Jersey still. House that I grew up in. Um, it is cordial and some level of warm and. Certainly the grandkids help uh, smooth some stuff around the edges. There's some stuff that I carry that is not going to be reconciled. And there is a certain, I don't want to say numbness necessarily, but like I do have to keep some arm's length um, emotionally or with some of the details of my life. But 
you know, we, we talk on the phone. It's cool. I, I took the kids out. I took everyone out to New Jersey last summer to hang out and it was awesome. So it's not like all bad, but there's some stuff there. That's just not, it's never going to be reconciled and it's not going to be some, you know, if either, if either of them are on their deathbed, it's not, there's not going to be like some, I forgive you moment. It's not like that. Mm. All right. There's not going to be some sort of a Magnolia moment, but, uh, you know, there's some things that should stay in the attic, I, I guess. And some things that, uh, you know, time and generations will smooth over, I guess. That's, that's, that's how it is for a lot of folks. I, I would have to imagine. Right. Yeah. Well, I get, I mean, the part of it is, you know, you get to learn uh, having kids is something of a panacea for it because you can know it, it, you know, when it's just you, you just sit with this stuff sometimes, you know, and now with kids, it's like, I can remember the things about my childhood that made me unhappy and I can do better. So it doesn't just have to be this rot that sits with you, but you can apply it towards making your kids happy. And I know there's stuff that I do that's going to fuck them up and they're going <laughs> to, excuse me, sorry. Uh, they're going to, um, you know, have their own issues with me as they get older and all that. But at least the stuff that uh, I feel like I can take from my childhood and improve upon makes it feel like it wasn't, it wasn't all for nothing. It wasn't, useless at least yeah no i mean that no that's that's the truth i i feel like every every generation we go through the the same things uh what is fatherhood like i mean you've you've got three kids right so what yeah. what is it yeah how, how would you describe it um kind of all encompassing and there's what the things that i remember the most about my childhood or if I had to sum it up, what was what I, I look back and I was like, oh, that was interesting. The 10 happiest moments and the 10 saddest moments, let's say, that involved my parents, I don't think they would be able to guess. Maybe the top, maybe the bottom of the worst stuff, maybe. But in general, it's like just random stuff. Like I remember my uh, on Sundays, for example, my dad used to just like everyone's in the car, me, my brother, my sister, my mom, and we would just drive around for. 15 or 20 minutes. And I kind of look back on it. And in some ways it's kind of absurd because I was like, well, I didn't have a car seat. My dad was smoking cigarettes. Like it was not necessarily <laughs> the most wholesome thing looking sure. back on it, but it was like, Oh, we were together and we were, we weren't in a rush and there was no agenda. There was no goal. We were just driving around the farms and looking around. And I love that. And I don't think my parents would, if you asked them would guess that like that was, that's something that I look back on really fondly. And so what I take away from that is everything that you do can be their happiest or saddest moments. You can think about it through the lens of intentionality. You can try your best, but it can be any day, any moment where they're going to remember it really fondly or really negatively. And to try to go through the day acknowledging that reality, I guess. Everything that you do even if it's seemingly innocuous or you don't really think very much about it or you're distracted could very easily be a memory that they're going to cherish or a memory that they are, is going to be traumatic for them. And so it's easy to like the intentionality, you know, it's like Christmas is coming up. What are we going to do? A birthday is coming up. What are we going to do? That stuff all matters for sure, but it's the day in day out sort of drudgery or routine 
where a lot of these memories get defined and it's important to sort of, uh, take that on board and not just, uh, be numb to it. But doesn't that add a lot of pressure to you as a parent? Because you're, you're basically having to, uh, or maybe that's just life, right? Maybe that's, maybe one shouldn't think of it as additional pressure, but just trying to do the right thing or the right intentional thing. Yeah. It's, it's more about acknowledging the stakes are always high. It's not like some days don't matter. And then the days that obviously do are the ones where you have to really get up for it all matters. Um, mm -hmm. and I don't know if that's pressure or not because I love my kids and I love hanging around them and watching them grow up and talking to them about stuff and sharing interests and all that kind of stuff. So it's not pressure, but it is an acknowledgement that it all matters. It's not just the big stuff. Are they already into games, basketball, football, baseball? Like, are you sharing oh. with them all kinds of stuff? Lord, unfortunately, my children, not competitive athletes. And not really <laughs> my middle child is trying to make a go of it, but I don't really think his heart's in it. Uh, my oldest is very into gymnastics. And so that is, I mean, I wasn't a gymnast, but it's, you know, something athletic and she cares about trying to get better. So we kind of share that. Um, I have gotten my middle child somewhat into wrestling and we are going to SmackDown this coming week, which we're real. I'm really excited about. I haven't gone to a show in a very long time and he's certainly jazzed up for it, but in terms of trying to introduce them into gaming or certainly magic, it's a really low priority. They like goofing around with Hearthstone because it's just like visually stimulating and all that kind of stuff. And I've explained to them that magic is like a much more complicated form of Hearthstone, but they haven't seen very interested past that. And I'm certainly not pushing on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Magic's a very particular type of thing, right? Just hearing you describe how you got deeper into it. It's kind of like, finding magic or finding religion like there needs to be a special sort of set of circumstances for one to really do that like i don't know how many kids are like love magic because their parents introduced i mean certainly in our generation that was never a thing right i guess now it is at a point where that could be a thing i i don't know do you know any parents whose kids just love magic because they were they it's sort of passed down by generation or something not in a competitive scene uh i i think that's more of a I think that's a more common phenomenon in the casual scene because just every competitive magic player, uh, I, I think once you have, certainly when you have a family and kids and things kind of slow down a little bit, looks back on that time and is not, even if they look upon it fondly, is not the type of thing they're encouraging their child to do because it is myopic and escapist and comes with a lot of, you know, stuff that's outside you can work as hard as you can and it's things are still outside of your control and all of that, you know? So I'm sort of, if they were like really actively, if one of them was like, I really want to start playing, I'm interested in tournaments and I would be supportive up to a point, but I would definitely not just say, Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's go do this together. Is there a particular reason why you may want your kids to be successful from an athletics sense? Um, I think some of it is discipline. I think some of it is in team sports, it's camaraderie. I think some of it is lessons around, like things involving fitness are things that can be valuable, like 
even if you don't end up playing sports. Um, yeah, I, I, and also there's just a certain level of, I don't know, Magic's got this like really random element. Like things are just not totally in your control, I guess. And there is a certain nihilism, I think, that that can engender, certainly did with me. Uh, whereas in sports, like the things that are happening are the results of just the direct actions of the people involved. And I just think there's something healthier about that, I guess. I think that's certainly so as someone who never really participated in competitive sports or athletics, but is, is fairly active now at a, as an adult, but I have always, I've always enjoyed just watching sports from the sense of it did give me, cause I'm not one of those people who, uh, you know, screams conspiracy theory or like refs are rigged and things like that. I, I just find like sports is one of the last arenas in the real world where it is still largely meritocratic. And I'm not sure if you agree or disagree with that. Well, I agree in the discrete sense of, yeah, the, the players that are out there are among the best in the world. Meritocratic, on, on, you know, sort of... Maybe not from a systems or opportunities standpoint, right? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's sort of confusing, right? Because some of it is uh, genetic predisposition and some of it is, are you born in a place that fosters that sort of talent and can identify it and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it, it starts becoming more complicated the sort of wider you pull the lens. But in the discrete, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Or, or at least I feel like maybe uh, a, a match, like a sports match, is more similar to something like chess. Like, you know, the better team wins, the team that executes wins. There's no, like, there's no... I shouldn't say this. There's there are coin flips maybe in certain situations or certain plays, but it's not. I've never looked at it from that sense. Now you could argue that the the process by which the team is fielded or the product is created could be unfair or you know lacking opportunities for everybody. But I, I guess what I'm saying is that you know Jason Tatum is a good basketball player. Jason Tatum plays for the Boston Celtics and there's a reason he plays for the Boston Celtics, I guess. And they, they play him because he's one of the best players on the, on the roster, that kind of thing. Yeah, totally. No, I, I, no disagreement there. Yeah. The, the, just the, the notion of meritocratic is, it is, it is loaded. Right. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree with the point you're making. Let, let's uh, shift gears and kind of talk about game design. I want to know Patrick, like how you went from, competitive magic player for or commentator how'd you make that shift into game design because i understand that maybe it was a part-time thing that eventually ramped up into a full-time thing but i could be wrong yeah, kind of my um my then wife was you know we were living together in new jersey and she was previously an editor for wizards of the coast so she had some experience with editing and templating magic cards and Versus System was starting up, and it was pulling a bunch of combination of Magic Pros, ex Watsy people, like whatever. It was it was good to know these people at the time, and they wanted her to take a job as the editor. And there was a question of what they were going like, you know, because are we going to move cross country for this thing and whatever? And they they said to sweeten the pot, they were like, and we'll give Patrick six months on an internship, and. Uh, if he turns out to have an aptitude for him, then he can have a job here too. So that was the that's how I got my foot in the door. Was they uh, they wanted 
my wife to work as an editor and uh, the people that were working there were all magic people or XWATC people. So they knew me well enough to at least, I at least was able to pass the first test, um, which is he doesn't seem like an idiot and he doesn't seem like he would be a catastrophe to have in an office. Uh, I guess it turns out that I had an aptitude for it or they felt I had an aptitude for it or whatever. And then I got hired into a permanent role and things sort of proceeded from there. How long were you in that role? And, uh, you know, how, how did it progress in there? Did you make it past the six months and all of that? Yep. And then, you know, they did the, the you know, Upper Deck did the whole, you know, we're extending your contract. Really, you're an employee being denied benefits, but the, this is just the way we do business. I think they eventually gave me like a full-time employee position maybe a year and a half or two years after I started. But yeah, they, there was no, once I was in the door, there were no gaps. They, they kept me there as a contractor or a full-time employee for, you know, six or seven years, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And I know you've had many wonderful stories and recollections, at least in the first iteration of the Resleevables podcast. Uh, so as I understand it, you worked on Versus System, then you worked on the World of Warcraft TCG, and then other things along the way. Is that is that what happened? Yeah, I went Versus System, World of Warcraft trading card game, uh, World of Warcraft minis, and then uh, back to the TCG once the minis got canceled or were about to be canceled, whatever the case was. And then pretty soon thereafter, Upper Deck lost the license to World of Warcraft. They had me working on some Bush League Marvel project that I don't even think ever went out the door. <laughs> and then... Uh, and then I uh, I got hired by Cryptozoic once they picked up the WoW TCG. Got it. Got it. So was working on WoW, the WoW TCG, the best part of your upper deck career per se? Like how would you, looking back on that, like what, what were the highs and lows? Maybe maybe not like top 10, worst 10, but just, just like anything that comes to mind when you look back on that period of your life. I mean, there was a play, I was honestly, I mean, it was really good in some respects because we were making a game that was reasonably successful. And there were a bunch of designers that I worked with that I just learned a ton from and had a good a good rapport with. It did get frustrating towards the end because uh, for reasons, um, Ryan Kibler was being moved off the project and he was sort of the final design lead for a long time. And so the, there was a question of, well, who's gonna take that role now? And it was basically between Ken Ho, Antonio DeRosa, and I guess myself as the three that one would consider. And I, I honestly, I mean, I'm not one to like to my own horn or whatever. It was like, I thought it should have been me. Um, you felt you were the most qualified for that role. For that particular role. And, uh, you know, and, and part of what frustrated me, I think about, you know, my time there and, and so forth is like Ken Ho and Antonio DeRosa, like are absolutely better at playing games than I am. If you want someone who is just a power level expert, like, yeah, for sure. I would, they are, they are better at that skill than I was. They're better at building decks, like all that. In terms of just the craft of game design and like operating with a sense of intentionality and having goals of what we're trying to achieve and what we're trying to improve upon, um, I thought it was me and it wasn't close. And I felt pretty frustrated that I was not considered largely because we were, you know, the people who were selecting were like, who's just the best power level person was the consideration. 
and to me that's just such a small part of what the job is um that i was really disappointed that i got passed over for that so you felt like you were the best from a kind of frameworks or breaking things down uh, might i say even designing for different user personas or different types of players and yeah. whereas they were looking at things maybe through a more and maybe they're really strong at it but you're saying that perhaps there are other parts to the role that you brought to the table and that were overlooked by the decision makers who had to appoint the next person yeah there's all that and also like it's not like Antonio and ken were going anywhere they still were going to work on the project their power level expertise would have been extraordinarily valuable. I, you know, I would have and did rely on them for a lot of that. But in terms of who should be in a leadership position, having a vision, communicating it, executing upon it, like asking hard questions about how do we improve our game and metagame and how do we get to a better spot? Like, yeah, I, I thought it was pretty unambiguously me that should have been there and was... Uh, very disappointed that it went another way. How was your relationship with uh, uh, Justin Gary? I'm just throwing a name out there because I want to ask you something about it, but I what, I'm not sure if it's like if if you guys are not on good terms. Maybe I shouldn't ask it. Oh well, no, we're we're so close. I mean, we're both very busy. But he and his partner came out to Denver a little while ago, and we went out for the evening and grabbed drinks and caught up and all that. Um, he seems like he's doing. He's really thriving uh, with the stuff that he's doing right now. And he made the same comment about me and what I've got going on. So, no, there's a uh, a lot of fondness there. I, I I worked underneath of him briefly at Upper Deck when he was in charge of WoW Minis. And then I also worked for him directly as an employee over at Stoneblade Entertainment for a little while. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard him talk about he was on the Tim Ferriss podcast recently, and he talked about <laughs> uh, pitching Upper Deck Minis for survival to the Upper Deck execs. Do you know about this story? I do. Or has... I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll just repeat it here for folks who may not have listened. Like he basically said that it was uh, basically the stakes are high, right? Like, like he needed to justify the project to continue. He was very nervous about it. He prepped for, I don't know, weeks or months about w making a case for why the game should keep going, why they should continue investing. And the way that he told the story, and this is only his perspective, I, there may be other perspectives, I admit that, but he said he went into that boardroom, he pitched the, 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 the idea of keeping it going. And basically he, his takeaway from the way the executives asked follow-up questions is that he went out of that room thinking, these people have no fucking idea what they're doing. Like absolutely <laughs> no idea what they're doing. And that was, it was that point he said that he decided I need to do something for myself because it was that dysfunctional or maybe that's how he felt in that moment. So I'm not sure if you can relate to that in some sense, especially knowing him and maybe knowing about this story through him or, and also working with him in future in, in subsequent endeavors of his, right? And and I, he and I lived together for a while too, back when I was in California, oh, uh, post divorce okay. or whatever. Um, I think I think Justin's telling of of history is largely true. Like they, it was a it was a sports card company first and an entertainment company second, and there's just they sort of fell backwards into this Yu Gi Oh windfall, and there you know there was no 
yeah, it was not a very skilled or experienced executive team with regards to the game side, but also no one outworks Justin. I've never met anyone who, who when we were roommates, who'd be like, like 1030 at night. And, you know, we would have a couple beers and he would be like, do you want to play the next Ascension game? Like, do you want to just, because it's like fun for him. He loves the work so much and the iteration process and all that. So I think him walking into a room with people who kind of don't know what's going on is going to be really off-putting for him. Even if they, even if they understood what he was talking about, the gap in terms of just the work ethic, the research, the understanding, I think would have been a major turnoff for him. But even accounting for that, I think Upper Deck was not <laughs> a good environment for him. Right, right. I, I almost feel bad asking this this question because I'm not trying to create some sort of uh, controversy, especially given recent months. I've learned to just lay low on that kind of stuff. But I, I really just wanted to get a sense for what it was like culturally at Upper Deck. And it seemed like in the past with on the receivables, you were open to talking about it. So hopefully I didn't cross the line too badly here no definitely not i mean that was it was a million years ago i don't know so you have a bunch of people who are who are hired largely because they have an aptitude for games like that was the thing that upper deck valued it was you know basically a bunch of the your move games people dave humphreys annie mandel they got in and how are they going to fill out a team they don't this is their first game design gig too right so they're going to hire other magic players they know uh, it was a company with basically nothing in terms of human resources or any sort of um, inner department sort of training. So you just had like a combination of really immature people, myself included, who had never had a real job before and who were used to being the smartest kids in the room, working with people who were just not that talented. And that is a really awful mix, especially if there's going to be a an abdication of sort of human resource style um, training and ways for people to avail themselves of, of help when a colleague or a boss is not acting appropriately. Yeah. You have an interesting background and I want to know how, when you started as a designer in this type of environment, you figured out game design. Like, I'm not trying to make this a super grandiose question, but you had mentioned things like you, you, you know, certain frameworks or you, you design with a certain type of intentionality. Like, how did you get that? Was that, was that learned through somebody? Was that learned through experience? Did you draw from your past background in debate and looking at multiple sides of a, of a topic or problem? Like, what was it? It was a combination of of all that, and I also just got to work with some really individually impactful people along the way. Um, Danny Mandel and Ben Jakoski, very high on that list of just having more appreciation for the creative process, I think, and not just being like a power level spike, pretending like you're testing for the Pro Tour. I think Matt Place was a huge, huge influence on me. This was a little bit later in my career, but he really gave me the vocabulary to describe the things I was feeling and also empowered me to execute on my vision as a sort of development lead, even though he was certainly more experienced and could have done that if he wanted to. Um, but yeah, I think I pretty quickly got, I, I definitely started the job being like, yeah, we're just testing for the pro tour. We're trying to figure out the best decks, power level, power level, power level. It's part of it. But then I, 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 quickly came to the realization of, oh, the sets we're putting out are not fun. 
the best cards in our sets are not fun. Our top five decks in like our version of standard, not fun. So there has to be some sort of disconnect between our process or our way of thinking about things and making a game that is actually fun. So it kind of started from this sort of nebulous, we're losing something in translation here kind of feeling. And uh, over time, just kind of developing, I guess, more heuristics or trying to think about that more critically, like less as a feeling and more of a, can we identify where, where and how that's happening? Right. Similar to how I asked you about what makes a great magic player, I will ask you here, what does it take to be a great designer or what are the characteristics that you see in great designers? Humility and empathy are the two big ones. Um, you are going to be the, like the systems that you're designing. If you're talking about like a trading card game are incredibly chaotic. Uh, and the worst thing that you can do is be too certain about what is going to happen when a set comes out or whatever. So uh, putting in backstops in case you are wrong is a really important thing to be doing. And also empathy insofar as games, typically you don't have to worry about the experience of the person who's winning because winning is intrinsically fun. How do you make sure that the person who is losing continues to have a good time? And that's a particularly hard mindset to get into or to cultivate when you're hiring a bunch of power level people off the Pro Tour because their entire framework for playing games is, I am trying to win. Trying to win is the point of games. And if you apply that sort of logic to designing games, you're going to make something that is not going to be fun for a lot of people. So something I've seen as a kind of extreme of making it better for the losing player is, you know how in Mario Kart there's that kind of, uh, the thing you can fire when you're not in first place to the first place person. So there's there's comeback mechanics. Like, do you think that sometimes games take it too far in terms of finding that balance of coming back versus uh, just, you know, almost being overpowered in some respects? So I think it, it sort of depends on the, the game. Like Mario Kart has some advantages for that sort of thing. Um, it is uh, presents very goofy, which kind of braces people for, yeah, there's going to be some random catch-up stuff going on here. Also, uh, games are pretty short and you just keep playing. So what's nice about, what makes that nice about Mario Kart is, you know, if you and your friends play all night, everyone gets their chance to win. And that's a really sweet part of it. And the creative conceit of it is such that, well, I wasn't expecting something serious in the first place. Like, I'm Yoshi driving a go-kart. This is already kind of silly. Uh, so I, I guess to some extent you have to answer that question differently for each game because... There's different, one, there's different goals in mind, and two, sort of the uh, aesthetic layout of the game can make those things anywhere from extremely annoying to uh, really fun and even celebratory. That's a really fascinating point. I never thought about the aesthetics of the game being able to uh, almost mask uh, the un inherent things i i've never thought about that way and that's that's really interesting so that means if i were designing for a fantasy ip versus pokemon versus something else there could be those types of considerations 
Yeah, I think that if you took everything about Mario Kart and made it true from a game engine perspective, right? Uh, and all you did was change um, what what we're doing now is instead of carts, we're racing F1. And instead of Bowser and Mario and Luigi, it's F1 drivers that you recognize. Uh, the catch-up mechanics that you're describing would be reviled, even with everything else about the game engine itself being the same. So that stuff definitely matters. Yeah, that's that's really... Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess the most extreme version of that would be something like... Uh, I don't know about you, but I used to do things like, you know, play Avalon Hill war games or things that... I'm not talking about Axis and Allies, but like the really hardcore stuff with Hex hexes and things like that. Right. Hexagon. And, and you can't have any kind of... Uh, shenanigans in that sense right it has to be faithful because that's kind of the the world that it's breathing in so yeah there's a there's a sort of a a, a way that i describe some magic cards or cards in other games uh that's sort of speaks to what i'm talking about sometimes i am critical of a design because this is not the game i signed up to play and your example with like the expectation management basically exactly your your uh example with Avalon Hill is really, really good because everything about the layout, the size of the rule book, the way the map appears, all of it suggests this is a serious game for people who want to play a serious game. And so people are already selecting into the experience that they want. You're playing that sort of game presumably because you like it. So at that point, preserving that experience is really important because that's the game I signed up to play. Um, you know, in, in Magic, I guess... A, a historical example of this, and this is like way over the line, but just to make the point, is Chaos Orb. It's like, this is not the game I signed up to play. This is like this random dexterity test, excuse me, dexterity test, and having to think about how I'm playing my permanence um, such that I'm playing around this card. That's not the game I signed up to play. And so it's a really dissonant experience, even though it can be fun some of the time. It's uh, obvious why Magic would want to move away from that very quickly. Mm. it's kind of an outlier that hangs over the cloud of the game itself if it just is allowed to exist basically right in the same way that i wouldn't go into a game of magic expecting to do push-ups like i it's just it's just so removed from different things it's 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 like magic taking a shot but then that shot doesn't is not consistent with anything else right and actually that was something that uh danny mandel really uh, he said this to me as just an offhand remark once, but I, it was one of those things that really landed with me. There was an unglued or unhinged, one of those sets that involved an arm wrestling competition. And the card got played and Danny and this other, you know, casual magic player who presumably would have fun playing with an unset, like basically didn't want to play anymore once that card was involved because it's not the game they signed up to play and also arm wrestling is such that like, it's not going to be a different outcome the next time, right? If you, if you lost the first time, <laughs> someone, you're probably going to lose again the second time. And this, you know, you would look at that card and think, Oh, this is innocuous or it's kind of fun or whatever. It's an unset who cares. Right. But Danny was like, yeah, well, like it really, it really caused him to have an awful time because even yeah. under the, the conceit of playing an unset, it was not the experience he was expecting to have. It wasn't the experience he signed up for. And, um, you know, it, that sort of lesson can be applied in a lot of different places, I think.
yeah as a total aside it might have been good for sean the hammer right one of the the first oh, yeah. pro tour players because he was a he was a former arm wrestler or was uh and uh but <laughs> not good for anybody else that he faced if that was a a tournament legal card so exactly yeah yeah it'd be good for the hammer not for anyone else <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um and and what is it like now going from uh tcg design and doing a lot of that for a lot of your career to doing design for mobile games that's that's like a whole nother dimension right part of it was out of necessity like i i just wanted to drum up work and was able to get my foot in the door at uh ea as a contractor for a little while and just had to kind of learn about some stuff there um and you know just more and more of the industry is that uh tcgs are pretty complicated for me to work on because i'm not going to move to seattle and so that sort of excludes wizards of the coast and you know if there was an opportunity in denver i would consider it maybe but you know i'm, I'm kind of grounded here so working remotely is is an important part for you know my my total life considerations um, you know, I'm coming in with very little in the way of technical engineering kind of skills. Uh, and it, it's actually been really fun because there's a lot of things that I have learned about best practices and also a lot of things about the nature of design or questioning certain standards in mobile that I think has been pretty educational for a lot of people that I've, I'm working with. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you have to – the way that – that content gets released in sort of the player journey is a lot more rigid than in something like magic where you don't really know where someone's going to start and you really don't know what the end looks like. So the architecture of the new player experience, what is day one, week one, day 30, day 60, day 90 look like, um, takes up a lot more of my time than uh, it, it, anything comparable to that would would in a TCG experience, right? Like that's basically the purview of product design. What are the starter decks we get people? What are the commander products that we make available at the LGS? It's not really on the design side. And in mobile, it is very much on the design side. So very new set of challenges. Uh, and there's some places where I can kind of feel some of the gaps in my understanding or experience, but it's, I've also learned so much in the last year. And that's a cool experience for, you know, being in a field, being in your forties and being in a field for 20 years and having a year where it's like, wow, I just, I learned a ton stuff. I didn't know things I could, didn't even think about. Um, that, that part has been really cool. Yeah. I think there's something about, uh, adapting one's skills, but at the same time, as you said, you may also bring a fresh voice or perspective in that you design for other styles of games in the past so maybe you're challenging some of the sacred cows of mobile gaming like would you say that there were some sacred cows that are legitimately should be there or and were there or were there other sacred cows that really shouldn't be there but it's just that's how we've always done it i i guess i i think there's probably a blend of those two things but it's not just a as simple as um you know could we question this? Could we do better? It's, we understand how to execute on this one thing in a particular way. And it's very efficient to execute it in that particular way. And it's a known variable. Like, let's say I questioned a bunch of, of these quote unquote sacred cows, right? And I questioned 10 of them. And let's say I'm right about nine of them. 
and wrong about one of them, it might actually be worse to do all 10 than to do none of it at all. Because there's all these externalities on the systems and the way that people work and all this stuff that means you you have to be so right for it to uh, be worth it. And I think there's some places that I, that I could identify where I'm pretty sure that I am right, but not sure enough that I would push on it against the sort of backdrop of inefficiency, having these conversations and the possibility of being wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think there's some things that are very valid for being the way they are, right? Clearly, it's working, or it fits a certain business or monetization model framework of the game. And so sometimes it can be counterproductive to just say, I'm going to start over. And especially if there's no no clear rationale. I mean, I, I don't work in games, but I, I work in software, and I can see there being similar tension or challenges when it comes to product design in general, right? Like as a product manager, do I do I reinvent the wheel? Do I try to figure out like what's mostly working and keep pushing on that? Uh, where do I invest in things that may be underexplored for the long term? Like these are all very difficult questions, right? Definitely. And you got to know what you don't know. Um, there's been a lot of things that I've proposed earlier on when I was first put on this project. This is the first project that's ever that I've ever worked on that has animation as like a big externality, like the notion of animation, the animation budget, and like things associated with that. And a lot of the things that I was proposing early on just ignored animation as an externality because it wasn't on my radar. I'd never done it before. Mm-hmm. And so you had to have some level of humility of when you're working on something new, you probably don't understand all the systems and the way that they interlock and the best practices associated around them. And so just kind of like try to absorb rather than table flip, um, especially when you're talking about a company that has a long history of success, you know? All right, Patrick, I want to shift gears into the the magic content things that you and Cedric Phillips are working on. So tell me about this new iteration of the receivables where the two of you are as I understand exclusively on YouTube, you're doing it uh, in person now in Denver, you're in a recording studio. Like how did that come about after this kind of uh, long extended absence from the initial version of the the audio podcast? Maybe just set that up for us. So as, as far as the receivables go, yeah, it's exclusively on YouTube. We also have a, a podcast that's paid wall, um, the Unsleep podcast. Um, which is just us kind of shooting the shit about, you know, it's like an R-rated whatever thing that we've done before. So um, the entire thing isn't on YouTube, but certainly the receivable part is. Um, We knew that we wanted to do it, you know, towards the end of 2021 and, um, you know, things sort of Cedric and Star City going their separate ways. We knew that we wanted to do something and Cedric wanted something a lot more, ambitious in scope and with higher production quality. And this was all stuff that I was on board with too. Um, We not only did it not happen in 2022, we didn't even talk about it. Like our lives are pretty chock full of stuff. And we knew that this was going to require some coordination and time and resources and all this stuff. So we got our sort of ducks in a row and, you know, bought a bunch of stuff and build a recording studio and, you know, all, all the stuff that, you know, set up an LLC, like all this sort of nuts and bolts stuff. Um, but 
I have not done something in a very long time that is like anything of a creative outlet. Uh, and certainly not something that I have had ownership over. And so that has been really, really fun setting aside that I also just love what we do. Like I love talking about this stuff and doing the, the research and going down memory lane and all that kind of stuff. Um, but more than that, just having, doing something with someone who I know for a long time, have worked with for a long time, uh, who I love, uh, to, do something cool that I think we're kind of in some ways uniquely situated to do has been just a lot of fun. You had already been in Denver for a number of years, but Cedric was not yet in Denver in 2021, right? So it was kind of a necessary condition for it to come together that the two of you had to be at the same physical location, right? That was part of it. I mean, you know, in theory, we could have, you know, there was a, a point where, uh, Cedric was thinking about maybe moving to a couple different places once he knew he wanted to move from Seattle. And there was some sort of generalized talk about, well, if things are going really well, you know, I could fly in and we could bang out a bunch of recordings in a weekend and try to do that once a month. Obviously much easier to do it living in the same city, but we had talked about the possibility of even if he was living somewhere else, maybe we could figure out a way to do it. So I guess it was clear from the two of you planning together that it needed to be an in-person show, right? The two of you didn't want to do it remotely, maybe like it was in the past or whatnot. Like it needed to have a very strong production value and just actually be in the same room and talking about stuff. That was important, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about a couple different permutations of it, but Honestly, we, we went over, we, the, the professor brought us out to Portland, um, for one of his, uh, shuffle up and play videos and seeing his setup and, uh, quality, the production quality, all that we were both like, that's what we want to do. Like we, we, we had talked about some kind of half-assed versions of it. Uh, but after a, a weekend with the professor, we were just, we wanted to do something good. Okay. And how how does it feel to have a full ownership of this project? I mean, you, you kind of alluded to it, but in the past, you know, maybe this was under an SCG umbrella or, you know, whether it was this or Sullivan's satchel, uh, you know, now it's an LLC. You, the two of you, I assume, completely own everything from the distribution to the revenue to to everything, right? Like, how does that feel, like, looking back on this little bit of... Uh, production i mean it's really fun and exciting but also it has gone well and maybe i would feel <laughs> differently if it had not <laughs> it's like that sliding doors thing right like i don't i don't think about the alternate realities very much and people especially don't think about the alternate realities where something they did was successful and they're like well what if it wasn't instead <laughs> you just don't think about things that way um yeah it's been great and i mean it's no like it's no hard feelings towards star city. I worked with them for a bunch of years and like had a great relationship and, uh, look fondly back on the time and the people that I worked with, but we wanted to be in a position where we could focus. Like we wanted to focus on our thing. That was a big part of it. And when you're kind of under this umbrella of everything, um, that they're doing, you can only get so much time and attention. Um, and we thought that there was potential with, some of the, the concepts that we had laid out in very rough form doing the podcast with them. 
uh, and we thought it with more time and attention and, and frankly, like money, like we built a studio and, uh, bought recording equipment and all this kind of stuff. Like we, we did stick our necks out there a little bit. Um, but having the, uh, the attention and, uh, the detail orientedness that can be hard to do when you're working with, with a company that's managing like two dozen projects. What was going through your mind at the beginning of this relaunch in terms of just thinking about the the less than optimal failure scenarios? Like what 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 was going through your head for rationalizing how this why this may not work out? Oh, just because it, there's it's not the there's not anything analogous to it. So when you're doing something different, you know, the the risk of you don't have a proof of concept or a template you can point to. I think there's some anxiety there. Um, I think there's also just, well, what if it's just not well received? You know, I, I, there, there was nothing that really made me think that other than the idea that it could be, uh, uh, you know what I mean? If that makes sense. Um, but I thought even if this isn't ends up being lucrative or well received or whatever, there's so many things like Rosewater's articles, right? Like that, it's great. It's weekly entertainment for people and they learn a lot and that's great. But to me, what is really special about it is this archive of history. You can go back and read perhaps one of the most influential people to ever touch magic and read their thoughts for decades and decades. And that lives forever. Like that's so cool. And so part of me thought, well, even if this isn't really successful, if we do something that I believe in and that I'm proud of, and it exists as something of a living archive, um, that would be worth it, even if it didn't, even if it wasn't successful or well received in sort of a, in the traditional sense, you know? Yeah, that it would contribute to the, the running documentation, for lack of a better term, of magic's history and design, right? Even in the worst case that there, you could leave behind some artifact of at least your specific view into it. Yeah, the can adding to the canon. And I mean, it sounds goofy, right? Because, you know, I've done this, done the job for a really long time and to some extent I've been desensitized to it. But I think about magic, like there's this game that I loved as a kid and this game that gave me some sort of purpose when I was pretty rudderless as a young adult. And there's a handful of cards that my time there just went directly from my keyboard to print. Like, you know, just mana cost and text box, everything. And it's like, oh, there's like a little bit of this that like I made. How cool is that? It's like it, when I talk about it in those terms, it's yeah, it's, it's really humbling. It's really cool. And uh, if this could also be some small addition to the canon or whatever, how cool is that? Like this has been a huge influence on me. Uh, before I even had the, I, I love this thing even before I had the notion that human beings made the cards. As silly as that sounds, like the sets would come out, and I was like, "Oh yeah, the sets came out." It, it never occurred to me as a teenager that there were people who made it. And you know, now in my adult years, having some very, very, very small, you know, like like specks of sand on the beach, right, type of uh, uh, imprint on the game, it's like so cool. And, um, you know, I was hopeful that at least 
the receivables could at least be that in some form or fashion, even if it didn't really turn into anything else. I think that's really, really cool. As a as a kid in the nineties playing magic or facing magic, I also never ever for a second thought about the people that made the cards. Like, sure, I, I read the duelist or these magazines and I had some notion that there was a team out there, but I just had absolutely no idea. I think it's just sort of also as a younger person, you're so involved in your own mental world that you never even step outside of it. And I think what makes the receivables a little bit really refreshing is number one for someone like me, who's in your age group, it's a really good way. To, it's just, it just hits the nostalgia uh, part for me really hard <laughs> in a good way. Right. But I think what's mm -hmm. also interesting is that it's also fair and kind because it puts things in a lot of historical context. Like, you know, when you, you know, like when you, when you listen to uh, not listen, but when you read a movie review, it, it, it happened at that moment in time. Uh, or when someone looks back on a movie, maybe like um, the Bill Simmons podcast, like uh, rewatchables or whatever it is, like there's some element of that, like looking at it through the lens back then versus now. But I think for game design, because you have been a game designer and you and Cedric have been in that world, it, whatever you end up saying about the sets makes a lot more sense and is a lot more credible than just the movie critics saying like, oh, this movie worked because of this or this this magic set worked because of that. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, sorry, this is a very long exposition, but I just feel like there's something wonderful about the fact that it's simultaneously a time capsule, but also a game design class, if that makes sense. Something that it's, it's interesting to me, again, it's like you people, you only know what you know. And like, okay, so everyone says, yeah, uh, magic, unambiguously brilliant uh, game design. Uh, Richard Garfield, you know, a master, blah, 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 blah. And then you point at the early sets and you like point and laugh. Like, oh, look at this, look at that. And it's like, uh, they were optimizing for a way different set of conditions. They thought rarity would be a meaningful gate for how people built decks. And so some of the overpower cards at rare, you kind of hand wave because not everyone's going to have them. Obviously, Magic ends up becoming a huge success and you have to update some of that. But at the time, yeah, totally makes sense. Um People talk about players back in the day. Everyone's got their story. You know, I traded uh, I traded my Mox Ruby for a Shivan Dragon. What an idiot, right? And it's like, actually, no. Uh, if you're building decks out of 10 packs and you just have a bunch of, like, dumpy alpha commons and it's so hard to attack, actually, Shivan Dragon is more powerful than Mox Ruby in those games. It's mm -hmm. not like people just suddenly got good at games one day. It's they were they understood the system in front of them as best they understood it. And I do think there's a certain level of, you know, it's easy to, again, to point and laugh at the stuff that seems really outdated. And that is also present in analysis of music and art and a million other things, right? But people have been smart at all points of human history. They just understand the systems that are in front of them as they best understand them. And that's going to produce different results sometimes than what's accepted today. And yeah, I try to provide that sort of context um, as best I can, because 
Um, I, we, you know, it's like we stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Like we understand what we know now about game design and game development because some people had the epiphany to do this in the first place. That's where the actual brilliance lies. The rest of us, the rest of it is just us learning over time. What's the most surprising feedback or set of feedback that you've received uh, in this current iteration of the Resleevables? Hmm. I don't. I don't necessarily know if it's you would describe this feedback as such, but the number of people who just will post something about some throwaway common, some part of a cycle that we go over, whatever, saying like, this is my favorite card. And I have this memory of playing with it a kid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it's so easy to think about magic in terms of just what are the 10 best cards in the set or what are the most popular cards in the commander or whatever. But all the details matter. All the cards get played with and every card is someone's favorite card. And getting to see that, like, it's no longer just a theory or a euphemism, but it's a reality. If you go look at our forums, that part's really cool. Absolutely. There's certainly been very pleasurable moments for me when I watch the show and you, because you're going through almost every mechanic of it and every set of cards, there's things that came back to me that it will never make its way to a top 10 list or even top 50 most memorable cards in that, in that year of magic. But it just brings back this wave of like, Hey, I used to play, you know, Life Lace, or I used to play <laughs> these cards, and it's just forever a part of me. And it, it, it's there's a sort of pleasurable thing where I just there's a thing that I didn't remember existed thirty years ago or twenty years ago, and it just suddenly comes back, and and that that really hits the spot. I think there's a weird like dopamine rush of just remembering something from that long ago. You know what I mean? Especially when you know, like your framework for magic nowadays it is informed obviously by the internet like and you have the set spoiler and the designers are telling you about the process of making the cards like so much is revealed and part of what i really appreciate about that era in time is that uh information was just less available and you just got to experience magic cards more like you were in a role-playing game wandering around and discovering things rather than a, uh, a a plate of food that you eat. You know what I mean? And I think there's something about just touching on these cards here and there that has that experience of like, oh, yeah, I remember when I discovered that for the first time. Oh, I have a recollection of my friend playing this. Like it, it kind of brings – it jolts these like little memories, these vignettes of when you saw the stuff for the first time. And, you know, I, I definitely appreciate the way that magic is – consumed nowadays and it just is what it is because the technology is so different but my fondest memories involve that going to a card shop and seeing something for the first time um and capturing a little bit of the essence of that has been uh a fun part of this for sure so imagine that richard garfield never created magic in the 90s it was never launched that it was there's an alternate reality what would one have to do to design and launch a game like Magic the Gathering in 2023? Uh, good question. I mean, I think, I mean, digital is probably the answer. You know, it solves so much in terms of tutorialization and uh, 
card availability and finding opponents and all that kind of stuff. But it, it's so hard. The timeline is so different that it's it's so hard for me to speculate on what that would look like. Mm -hmm. And it's influenced so many digital games along the way, including Hearthstone, that it's forever intertwined in gaming history, right? I think I think Garfield would have to be one of the greatest game designers of all time, not just for analog card games, which, by the way, is a genre that was completely created, um, but just among the greats, right? So it's very hard to know what that world looked like, I think. Yeah, I mean, even Hearthstone, for example, I, I got to be involved in a very, very alpha uh, part of the Hearthstone um, development. They were basically soliciting feedback about a game they were working on as they were in the process of pulling the license from us. I remember this this meeting that Dave Dave Humphreys and I were in. They like brought us over to check out this like early what ended up being Hearthstone sort of thing. And Dave and I were looking at each other like, I think they're trying to put us out of business and I don't know what kind of feedback we're supposed to be giving them. But, <laughs> Conflict of interest, yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah, it was a weird it was a very weird meeting. But a lot of like the inspiration for Hearthstone was magic is a bad digital game. What are the ways to make a good digital game? What are the things about magic that are bad in digital and change them? That's where a lot of, I mean, there was some other stuff going around too, in terms of the, the undergirding philosophy, but even in the way that magic is, is not great. And keep in mind, magic was designed in 93. It wasn't meant to be a digital game, right? So it's not fair to judge it on that uh, level, but it is true. It's not a great digital game. And a lot of what Hearthstone did was uh, driving at that. So, yeah, you totally don't get Hearthstone without Magic. Yeah. But it's also hard to say that Magic, if it was launched now, would just be Hearthstone because it, it had to have inspired Hearthstone in the first place. So, yeah. I, I do think that there's a certain level of, you know, you have a lot more plausible deniability when the thing is new and no one really knows what's going on. And even if you went and... Uh, you know, got rid of magic and released it for the first time in, in, uh, 2023. I do think some of the power level outliers, people would be more annoyed at rather than remembering them fondly. So there is a, a, some level of time and place for it, but, uh, yeah, it's also, it endures because it is great. And sometimes it's not more complicated than that. Speaking of endure, I'm going to ask a leading question. What does the longer term look like for the receivables or the pre-sleevables when you've gone through most of the sets, or at least the sets that you have personal connections with as a player? What does that look like once you've exhausted that? You know, you know, at some point it's going to your catalog is going to overtake the catalog of Magic, despite Magic releasing sets so quickly as they do nowadays. Like, what what is the longer term? look like uh, i'll i'll answer that through the lens of uh of magic which is let's imagine you're working on alpha all right and you know that um there's some cards in there that are like really really good and would be really really annoying if everyone got them and you know but it's fine if you're just you and i just buy some packs and we build some decks it doesn't really matter if one of us has a black lotus our decks are bad and who cares and someone goes, look, if this game is really popular and people buy a bunch of product 
and people start having 10 or 12 copies of Black Lotus in their deck. The game breaks down pretty fast. It's not going to be fun. My response to that would be, that sounds like a good pl- a good problem to have. And it's much the same. Like, if we're still doing this thing in five years, four years, whatever the pace would have to be for us to, like, bump up against what you're describing, that would be an enormous success. And I do think that we would – we've talked about some, you know, longer vision. What are things that we could do if we ever bumped up against, the, uh, uh, bumped up against that? So it's not like we haven't thought about it sort of broadly, but uh, that sounds like a good problem to have. Yes, absolutely. On that note, Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, my pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much. Thank you, as always, for listening to Humans of Magic. If you would like to support the show, there's two things you can do. Number one is super powerful. Please tell a friend. Tell them to check out Humans of Magic on YouTube or any of the podcasting platforms. Word of mouth is super important, and I would appreciate that so, so much. The second way, and the most direct monetary way, is to consider signing up for the Humans of Magic Patreon at patreon.com humansofmagic. This is where you can make a direct impact on my bottom line. And if you join the community, the Patreon community, you will be able to participate in special member perks like a Discord, such as the ability to ask future questions for future guests, and to even have a voice in what sorts of guests that I will have on the show in the future. If you're really, really interested in supporting, there's also a super premium tier where you can get some coaching on how to podcast, how to interview, how to run a magic show or even a non-magic show that involves interviewing. This is something that I've been doing for a while and I want to give back to the community in some way and to help you if that's something that you are interested in. So as always, thank you for listening to Humans of Magic and we'll see you next time.